0: I was in our neighborhood life group. There were about 15 people there. It was before our study began. And one of the university students that was attending our group this summer when she was home, she said, "Um, Christianity, it's really kind of like psychology. Isn't that right? I said, well, it's like psychology. Well, isn't it really just psychology? I said, just psychology? No. I said, why do you say that? She said, well, I've gone to a church this past year, and all the sermons I figured out were psychology. I said, that's too bad. I said, you were cheated. If what you're saying is true, if what you heard was psychology, you really didn't hear what Christianity is all about, because uh, psychology is helpful, and Christianity can help psychology. But Christianity is so much more than just psychology. And I said, I say this for three reasons. And the three reasons that I gave her are the three reasons given in the book of 1 John that takes Christianity beyond the subjective to become objective as a faith. This is the message that we all need. And I want to encourage you to take some serious notes this morning. On why Christianity is more than a subjective faith. Why we can say it is objective. Now the book of 1 John was one of the last books written in the Bible. Uh, 1 John was of course written by the Apostle John. He wrote five books. The only one that wrote more New Testament books was the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13. This past summer, we studied those 13 books. Now we're beginning the three letters that John wrote. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the three letters known as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then he wrote the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. It's interesting, though it's last in the sequence, Revelation was not the last book written. Uh, Unmistakably, the last New Testament books written were Second and Third John. So, First John was written. The Gospel of John was written somewhere in the process. The Book of Revelation was written after First John but before Second and Third John. When we get to Second and Third John, I'll explain why we know that. But they are not listed chronologically, they're listed according to the genre of literature, just like the Old Testament has the history books, the poets and the prophets. The New Testament has the history book, the letters and the one book of prophecy, the book of Revelation. That's why it's the last in the sequence. John was the youngest of the apostles. He was probably 19 when Jesus died. He was young. But by the time he's writing 1 John, he's an older man. So there was this large span of time during which all the other New Testament books were written before John even started. He was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And he wrote this letter as an older man with almost a grandfatherly style. Describing the needs of the church, of the Christians who were living in a culture that was trying to erode the Christian faith with subjectivity. For them, the problem was not eroding it with psychology. The problem was eroding it with philosophy. Trying to reduce Christianity to a philosophy the particular philosophy that was undermining Christianity at the time was known as Gnosticism. It was the philosophy uh, that we live in a two-story universe. There's the physical universe that is um, on one level, and then there's the metaphysical level that is much higher, and that's the good level where the philosophers deal and that's all that matters. They tried to separate the physical from the non-physical and say whatever's done in the body really doesn't matter. It's what you think that matters and it's as long as you can reason properly. Interesting, though they professed to be wise, they actually became fools and said everything is subjective and you can't know anything. Well, if you divorce thinking from Uh, physical reality, what can you know? What point of reference do you have? And so while they professed all this knowledge, their knowledge was totally subjective. And it was undermining the Christian faith. So John writes this letter. And in writing the letter, John writes so many statements of highly practical value that we've all benefited from. The book of 1st John probably has more verses that we all like to quote than perhaps any other book in the Bible. How many times have we gone to 1st 1 John 1-9 and quoted, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to be able to deal with a guilty conscience And to know that God forgives us when we confess our sins. Or, greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. When we're up against so much in our day-to-day life to have a verse like that. Or the one that God used to convince me that I do have eternal life. The verse chapter 5, verse 11, 12, and 13. In this is life, and this life is of God. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's one of those verses in the book of 1 John that says we can know that our faith is not subjective we can know with absolute certainty in this life, we can know when we die, we will spend eternity with God because of Jesus Christ. In college, I went through a season of God pointing out the sin within, within me. And I came to a place where I thought, how could I have eternal life? When I am so sinful, and God led me to that verse where it says, "I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God," and that was me. I believed in the name of the Son of God, so that so that you may know with absolute certainty that you have eternal life. It's not you might have, or when you die you'll find out if you have you may know that you have eternal life. And that was for me, and I claimed that verse. Or the next verse, chapter 5, verse 14. We have this certainty that if we ask anything in His name, according to His will, He will hear us. And if we know that He hears us, we know that He will grant the requests that we make. So here in one book, we have the assurance of forgiveness of sin, the assurance of victory over sin, the assurance of salvation, the assurance of answered prayer, and the assurance of victory over the evil one. All this assurance. And you know why all that assurance is in this book? It's because it was written to a culture. Of subjectivity where those things that Christians can be certain of were being eroded and it's amazing how God uses the evil in culture to bring forth the truth that God had has had for us all along and in our own day when the Objectivity of Christianity is being eroded away by an abuse of psychology and the preaching of nothing more than psychology. We want to come back this morning to the book of 1st John and discover the three underpinnings of Christianity that give us objectivity. How do we return objectivity to the Christian faith? Okay, you ready? Number one, Christianity is objective because it's rooted in history. Psychology is rooted in the human experience. Philosophy is rooted in human thinking. But Christianity is not rooted in human experience. It's not rooted in human thinking. It's rooted in history. Just look at the way the book of First John begins. Chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at close up, and our hands have touched. This is what we proclaim to you. That's objective. John begins his entire letter saying that the basis of our faith is objective. We're not talking about things that we've just experienced or have thought about. We are dealing with Jesus Christ, who is the incarnate Son of God. Twice in this letter, he comes back and underscores the significance of the incarnation. Chapter 4, verse 2. This is how we can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. Has come in the flesh is referring to the historic moment when Jesus Christ was born. And He lived. He walked on water. He touched blind eyes and they could see. He raised the dead. He spoke to demons and they obeyed him and released those that were held in bondage. All of those verifiable, objective realities of the Christian faith. Christianity is objective because it's rooted in the historic person of Jesus Christ. Number two. Christianity is objective because it changes my life. It changes your life. One of the greatest evidences of the objectivity of Christianity is to watch a person change when they meet Christ as Savior. The change that takes place in in a person's life is proof positive that there is a God. Now, if the first reality isn't true, that Jesus came in time and space, that our faith is rooted in history, how do we expect a God who's off somewhere, who's never entered our world, to be able to change a life? The very fact that when Jesus came in bodily form, and as the Son of God grew up, He grew into His thirties, and was crucified on a cross... He was dead and buried, and that same physical body came back to life. Because of that that happened in history, Jesus Christ today is able to change anyone's life. Because Jesus in physical body came back to life from the dead. That same Jesus who was raised from the dead is able to raise you up. Out of any state of moral depravity, of ruin, of issues that you face, of selfishness, of compulsive behavior. All of that, Jesus Christ can overcome. And here, 1 John gives so much evidence. Chapter 1. Verse 6, if we claim we have fellowship with him, but do not walk in the light or walk in the darkness, we lie and the truth is not in us. Or chapter 2, verse 1, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Chapter 3, verse 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, but you know that he appeared so that He might take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen Him or known Him. Now, when you read those verses, you can almost think, well, now let me see, I keep on sinning. Does that mean that I'm really not born of God? Now, First John does not teach sinless perfectionism. We know that because chapter one, verse eight says, "If we claim to be without sin, we lie." Verse 10 says, "If we claim we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar." So we're not talking about being sinless. But we are talking about sinning less. We're never going to arrive at a place of perfection until we die and go to heaven. But if it is true that our faith is rooted in history, and Jesus did die because of our sins, and He was raised in spite of our sins, or victorious over our sins. And we come to know Christ. Christ makes it possible for us to have victory over sin as well. We don't have to live defeated lives in slavery to sin. We can live in victory over sin. Always. Again, doesn't mean we're perfect. It does mean... When we grab sin by the throat and identify it and confess it and renounce it, we have victory over that sin. We don't have to live in ongoing bondage to that particular sin. It's part of the beauty of the Christian life. And it's proof positive that there is an objectivity to Christianity. Because He's enabled me, by His power, to overcome sin. Praise God. The third objectivity of Christianity is that we who love the Father love the family. Let me just review our three. Christianity is objective number one because it's rooted in history. Christianity is objective number two because the same God who came in Jesus Christ in history is changing my life right now. And number three, the same God who so loved the world gives me a love for His people in the family, the brothers and sisters who are here with me in Christ. It's proof of the reality and objectivity of the gospel. In fact, the contrary is a discredit to us and to Him. It says in 1 John How can we say we love God whom we have not seen if we do not love our brothers and sisters whom we have seen? I mean, be real. If we're going to love the Father, we're going to love the brothers and sisters in the family. 1 John is the only book in the Bible that says God is love. It says it twice. Verse 8 of chapter 4 and verse 16. Just in case you miss it the first time, he repeats it a second time. God is love. Now, don't misunderstand. The Bible teaches that throughout the Bible, that God is love. But it's the only place that those exact words are used. God is love. It says that his love is everlasting. It says that his love is abounding. It says that his love never fails. But the words God is love is found only right here. And it's because it's the headwaters. It's what gives Christianity authenticity. And when a brother and sister in the family fight, it's a discredit to the parent. That's logical. And so John says, because God is love, he says, let us not love in word or in speech, but let us love in deed and in truth. He says specifically, if you see a brother or sister in need and do not help him, how is the love of God in you? Now, what proves that Christianity is more than subjectivity? It's more than philosophy. It's more than psychology. What proves it? is that people who for no other reason love each other because they have the same Father. That proves Christianity. What proves Christianity is that the God who sent His Son, who took my sin and was raised from the dead, is now changing my life morally, ethically. I live different. I do business different. I am now humble enough to ask someone to forgive me for doing wrong. To fessing up to, to deceit or dishonesty or half-truth. When God deals that deeply, Christianity rings truer. When we're willing to come clean, It bears witness to the reality of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. No, we live in a subjective world that is a subjective culture. That is trying to undermine our faith by pointing out the subjective. But we as Christians want to learn from this book of First John to reclaim the objectivity of our faith and to live with integrity in a fallen world. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the family of God. Thank You for the miracle that You're working in each one of our lives every day when you point out sin, when you lead us in repentance, when you apply the work of Jesus on the cross and the empty tomb to our daily lives and change us from the inside out to make us who were formerly self-centered and selfish to be giving and generous to take a inward-focused people and make us a missionally outward-focused people. From moving us beyond just living within our comfort zone to living lavishly and demonstratively in our world, demonstrating the reality of the love of God in ways that neighbors and those around the world can understand. Lord, as I thought this morning of John O'Kelly leaving a job here in Atlanta to go to help rebuild the lives of thousands of people in Haiti. That's Christianity. That's proof positive that God sent His Son. Because it's still happening in our world. And Father, for those that serve on Wednesday night, our children, not because they've got nothing else to do, but because they want to make a difference for eternity. Lord, everyone that comes on Wednesday night to serve the children from our community who come, it's proof positive that God sent His Son Because there's giving in tangible ways. For every life group that's reaching out to their neighbors and listening to their stories and taking a meal or mowing a lawn, raking leaves, it's proof positive that there is a God who loves this world still. Father, we thank You for Christianity that is expressed, that's authentic, that rings true in our fallen culture. Father, we embrace the objectivity of our faith. And we thank You, Lord, for the clarity of Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.